Welcome to Joint Effort with Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. This podcast covers the pain and injuries that are associated with muscles, ligaments, and joints. I'm Baron Bremner, and today on Joint Effort, we have Dr. Teresa Lamasters, who's a general surgeon by training, but an expert in bariatric surgery and weight loss and obesity. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. You are the medical director of bariatric surgery at Unity Point here in Des Moines, correct? Correct. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background in, in medicine and your education and training? Sure. So I'm originally actually from down the road a little ways in South Dakota. That's where my original stomping grounds come from, and that's where I went to medical school. Okay. I did my general surgery training in Kansas, in Wichita, Kansas, through the KU School of Medicine. And then I did my fellowship, which is additional training after my general surgery training, specifically in minimally invasive surgery, robotic surgery, and bariatric surgery, which is weight loss surgery. I did that in California at Stanford University, mm-hmm. and my husband is from Iowa, and we have family here, and that's okay. what brought us to Iowa. Okay. So we're excited to be here. I've been here since 2007, actually, so quite a while. That's when I got here, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so bariatric surgery, you said it's uh, you know weight loss surgery. What's the term bariatric mean, like literally? For, why is it bariatric? You know, when I think of bariatric, I think of barium enema or like a, a barometric pressure. Does that have anything to do with it has pressure to do or what with does it, it mean? It really doesn't. Um, you know, it's, it's an old term um, mm. and it really confuses people. So a lot of times you don't like even me. use that term yeah. because they think of hyperbaric, barometric, all these right. different things, but talking about, yeah, of size, being of size. Okay. Um, but really so many people uh, are confused by it and there's a lot of stigma to it actually too. Mm-hmm. So even our national society, we do change our name many years ago, almost about around that 2007 mark to the American Association for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. So we've added the metabolic mm-hmm. to help people understand what the surgery is about better. Mm-hmm. Because the word bariatric, just so many people don't understand what that means. This has a bad connotation for some people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and our, you said you also specialize in robotic surgery. Is that a big part of your practice now or is it not? It is. It's probably about a third of my practice. So all of the rheumogastric bypasses I do robotically. I do a lot of the sleep gastrectomies that way. Um, A lot of the especially complex foregut kind of reoperative stuff. Mm -hmm. I do robotic Mm -hmm. assisted. It's a nice tool to have available. I don't always have access to the robot. So I tell people, you know, don't be afraid if I'm doing it laparoscopically without oh, sure. the robot because I'm very comfortable and confident that way too but it's a nice tool when we have it. Laparoscopic means without a large incision with smaller incisions. Tiny incisions mm-hmm. right with a camera uh, that we have great visualization but we use straight sticks so with a robot I, it's almost like having a little mini hand inside the belly. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done about 3,000 of these type of surgeries in the last 14 years. Uh, you're on a lot of different boards, national boards, things like that. Um, and you seem to be very passionate about outcomes data and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's so important to you? Sure. So I'm very passionate about quality outcomes. Um, I'm actually part of the standards committee for the MBSEQIP, which is the National Accreditation Organization. So I help write the standards for the entire country around um, what would be considered an accredited bariatric program. Um, they used to be called the centers of excellence, but they changed the terminology just to be current with the times and the other uh, accreditation programs from the American College of Surgeons too. So now it's the accreditation program, but it's mm-hmm. it's basically the same thing as the old centers of excellence. So I help write the standards. I do site surveys of, of programs who want to become accredited or re-accredited, and I do a lot of quality improvement coaching. So if they need 
areas where they have process improvement or, or areas where they can improve their quality. I help teach them how to do that and help go over projects that they're working on. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the most important things we can do is really focusing on quality and even if we're already excellent of how we can do even better. Mm -hmm. And so that helps us really stay on top of our game and not be complacent about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But I am very passionate about it because um, a lot of times we can get kind of hung up in the weeds, so to speak, and that keeps our focus on always safety, outstanding quality, outstanding outcomes, and we never are done. We're mm -hmm. always continuing to work on that. You can't know how you're doing unless you collect data on it, right? Exactly. So all our data goes in a database. We're kind of unique in most accreditation programs because we have 100% data capture, mm -hmm. which is very different from other programs. Um, and we're compared to other accredited programs every six months. So I tell people, we have to put our money where our mouth is. Mm -hmm. We know exactly what our outcomes are. We know when something comes up that we need to look at closer. If we seem to see a cluster of a, a problem, we can identify it right away and get on top of it right away. Mm -hmm. And um, it's always a moving bar, right? We're all getting better. Mm -hmm. So as we all get better, then we're constantly still compared against others so that we know, are, are we keeping up? Are we leading mm -hmm. uh, the charge? Are we falling behind? So that we can always be on top of that. Again, if you measure it, you can change it. Yeah. If you don't measure it, it's easy to have amnesia and think you're just always doing great. Well, that's what, uh, you know, the old saying for surgeons is nothing ruins a good surgery like follow-up, <laughs> meaning that if you don't know what's going on, of course everything went great as far as you know, but exactly. so you need to have follow-up on all these things. Can you tell us about your team of experts at Unity Point? Like what is involved in your clinic? What type of providers do you work with? Right, that's a great question because really bariatric surgery is a multidisciplinary team effort. And I tell people all the time, it's really not about the surgery. The surgery is important, it, it, it really sets the stage, but it's a whole um, multidisciplinary team that really has outstanding outcomes. So this starts before surgery. We do a lot of what we call optimization uh, or preparation for surgery, getting people in good shape. Sometimes it's called prehabilitation or preconditioning, and you guys are probably very aware of this, mm -hmm. but mobility is one piece of that and pre-op physical activity, but it's also medical pre-optimization. So improve blood sugar control, blood pressure control, um, improve. And who's doing that for you? Are you so having a nurse practitioner that works on that or do you We do, do have advanced practice providers, so nurse practitioners, PAs. Mm -hmm. I have my own board certification in obesity medicine separate from my surgery board certification. I so I help lead that program too. But I actually have advanced practice providers who have additional certification in obesity medicine as well. So we use even medications pre-surgery. If you think of neoadjuvant therapy, preparing mm -hmm. people for surgery and optimizing them, and then we can use them after surgery or in combination with surgery. Mm -hmm. So it's like adjuvant, if you're thinking about cancer care, right. treatment after surgery. So right. we, we cover the whole continuum of care. But to do this well, we have to have a team. So. Um, we do have our advanced practice providers. We have four dietitians who work with us. Okay. Uh, we actually have five nurses who work with us. We have our mental health provider. We have our data collector who's a full-time person constantly watching our data, helping prepare reports, giving information. Our nurse coordinator, we have a specialty nurse. Um, we have an exercise physiologist um, also to help them prepare before surgery and help them post-surgery with their um, mobility and exercise routines. Um, so we really have all those components. We have an insurance specialist. We actually have a couple of those, which is really important because unfortunately in this area, it's one of the most difficult areas to actually just get to surgery because insurance companies have many barriers in place. And so, and they change the rules all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really important to have those 
insurance experts as part of the team too to help people oh, navigate yeah, that, that pathway. Yeah. So, and all these people help us after surgery as well. I tell people, when you pick someplace to have surgery, you're not really just picking the surgeon. You're picking the program that's gonna follow you long-term and for life. And we put serious effort into our long-term follow-up and our support groups and our support for patients long-term. So I'll tell you there are other programs out there that they have to provide long-term support to be an accredited program, but there's a difference between paying lip service to that and putting the effort and resources behind that to really support people long-term. We're dealing with a chronic disease that we're not curing with surgery. We're treating it, we're managing it, but it requires long-term care. And so we wrap those services around the patient. It's truly lifelong care for that patient. Well, yeah, to your point about it not just being surgery, when I have a patient who might need to talk to you and I say, have you talked to a bariatric surgeon? You know, a lot of people just shut down because they hear the word surgeon and bariatric and maybe I've got to figure out a better way to say, would you like to go to the weight loss clinic or something like that? What would you recommend? So it's more of an approachable type. That can be helpful in just talking about You know, I know some experts in treating this disease of obesity using patient first language to understand that it's not a person who's obese, it's a person who has obesity Mm -hmm. is is an important starting Mm -hmm. point. And then talking about, we do both medical, non-surgical weight loss and surgical weight loss. And that sometimes helps it be less intimidating for people. Um, Most people don't understand the physiology behind the disease. And they've always been told this is your own fault you got yourself into this, you need to get yourself out. And so we really have to reframe that conversation around your physiology doesn't work the way it should and the way it does in other people. And just like for somebody with asthma, we wouldn't tell them to go home and meditate and avoid all their triggers. We would give them medication to treat their life-threatening disease. And we need to look at this as a life-threatening disease that needs to be treated, and especially by experts in the field, because unfortunately we've made a lot of progress, but there's still a lot of bias and stigma, even in the medical community, uh, against people who have this disease, and a lot of misunderstandings and myths and misconceptions out there. So sometimes they shut down because they've had a bad experience, Mm -hmm. sometimes with a medical provider talking to them about their weight and usually the answer they've received is well get off the couch just eat less and exercise more and they have tried that they've tried it and tried it and tried it and they didn't get anywhere so they're discouraged before they even start how do you um you know i know there's some pushback from certain people that they say we shouldn't be using the term obesity um you know that we should that everyone has different body sizes and weights. How do you walk the line with your patients between, you know, knowing that some of these things are variations in body size and things like that, and you gotta be careful with what you say, and then some of the things are very dangerous and and need to be treated, or else you'll have a shorter life or a less healthy life. How do you walk that line with some We always try to use patient-first language and understand that they are a patient with a disease, not a disease. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's important in all the things that we take care of in medicine, but especially in this area, um, people definitely have that uh, concern, but we want to be frank about the risk to their life. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to focus is on what does this mean for your life going forward in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years? What does this mean in the extra weight? Right. Yeah. Um, for your health conditions and mm-hmm. a shortened lifespan mm-hmm. by anywhere from five to 15 years less. So. We do try to be careful about the terms because some terms do shut people down. 
The other thing, unfortunately, BMI is the easiest number to use. Sure. It uses the height and the weight as a ratio, but it's probably not the most important number. Right. And this is where people get really hung up because you can have a very athletic fit person who has a higher BMI, that doesn't mean they have obesity. Mm -hmm. But you can have somebody who's not very fit and certainly it can be uh, an impact. Mm -hmm. What's more important is how they carry the weight. So we talk about waist circumference is a more important variable of how their risk of disease is, especially for early heart disease and early death. So we talk about, you know, for people who carry their weight around the middle, that's a very high risk factor. So same men and women? Or same, same men and women. Factor? And mm -hmm. because it's a different measurement for each men and women mm. that we use. Sure. But that as a risk factor is very similar in their risk uh, going forward. Mm -hmm. They understand that. You know, I talk about, well, when people have where they carry their weight more in the middle around the waist, mm -hmm. that's an indication to us that you have more severe disease. And also, especially because that tends to be combined with abnormal blood sugars. It may not be full di type 2 diabetes, mm -hmm. it may be pre-diabetes or things like that, but it also goes with high blood pressure, high triglycerides, what we call hyperlipidemia. And when you combine those all together, that's when you get kind of the trifecta of, of shortened lifespan and really increased risk of early heart disease, but also early stroke. And that does get people's attention because they're like, wow, I didn't realize that I was carrying that much disease. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I thought I was pretty healthy. But you, you talk to them about how those things go together to increase their risk and shorten their life. That mm -hmm. definitely gets people's attention. Yeah. Um, but also decreases the things they, they want to do, you mm -hmm. know, their ability to do the things they want to do. So we are careful about terms um, and talking about what is obesity as a disease. But we try very hard not to tell people you're obese. Okay. And it gets very sensitive about morbid obesity, but that is a medical term for a degree of obesity. So I still use that, but I'm careful about how I, I talk about it, about you have a disease where you have severe obesity, and at your level, it leads to early death. And that's why it's called morbid obesity. What's, so that helps. Thank you. What is the, um, the scope of this disease problem in the United States, and where are we going with it? Oh, it's substantial. Um, Again, different areas of the country, different amounts, but kind of think of about a third of people in the United States now have obese, severe obesity. Um, if you go to overweight, it's much higher than that even. So, and this has gone up substantially even since like the 1980s and each year we are getting bigger. And so there's some really interesting data behind this uh, because we know that about 70% of obesity relates to genetics. And when I tell people that, their first question is, well, how can that be? Because DNA doesn't change that fast. How did we have this obesity epidemic explode faster than DNA changes? And the reason is because of basically DNA methylation or through histones and what we call epigenetics. So it's the expression of genes rather than necessarily the changing of DNA. So what we see, we see this in smoking too. When mothers smoke during pregnancy, it increases the risk of asthma for two generations. Mm. And that's because of this DNA methylation and this histone transfer. We see this in women who have children when they have obesity as well. We see signaling in the womb that increases that child's risk of lifetime obesity significantly. So we see each generation actually having more severe disease at an earlier age. So um, I take care of a lot of women who have infertility 
Um, so they, they're coming me, to me specifically for fertility. And a lot of times they'll ask me, should I be looking at surgery earlier or wait till I'm done having kids because of the risk of weight regain or weight gain during pregnancy? Mm-hmm. And the answer is as early as possible mm-hmm. because it's safer for the mom, but it's also safer for the baby. And we did a study at Stanford when I was there looking at children who were born to mothers pre-bariatric surgery and after bariatric surgery. And the ones after had a lower lifetime risk of obesity because of this in the womb methylation Mm -hmm. and transfer that's going on. So there's a a lot going on. So things aren't going in the right direction as far as our, uh, the United States. And uh, I think across the world, it's uh, trending like this now. It's all over. And that's what people don't understand. They think it's just an American problem, a U.S. problem. It is not. And in fact, when we see people from, especially India descent, um, Asian descent, they have way more severe disease at a lower BMI. Mm. So somebody with a BMI of 35 with, say, an India descent Mm -hmm. may have the same disease level of somebody of a Caucasian of a BMI of 45 or 50. So we actually need to look at much lower BMIs when we're looking Another at those Another limitation ethnicity. of the BMI as a, as a marker of disease. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But it is what we have. It's a, easy for us to use and And, and insurance companies love it because sure. it's easy. Yeah. It's the easy button. You talked about um, some of the problems that can come from having the disease of obesity, including diabetes and high blood pressure and early death. Um, is sleep apnea another one of those things? Absolutely. Sleep apnea is a big one. When we find in our patient population about 80% of people have sleep apnea, most of them didn't know they have it. Many of them don't even tolerate treatments, the standard treatments for sleep apnea very well, either a machine or an appliance. They have a lot of anxiety, a lot of claustrophobia. This is a great treatment for sleep apnea. Now we try to, if we can, have them treated pre-surgery because it helps decrease their risks around the time of surgery. But even if we can't get them treated, in most cases, we can still do surgery safely, and it will actually help their sleep apnea, which is substantial as well. If you look at um, men and women who have sleep apnea, is there one group that does better with bariatric surgery for decreasing their sleep apnea? So it's a good question. Um, I'd have to look at the data to tell you exactly for sure, but I would tell you that it's usually men lose more weight faster earlier. Um, they both definitely lose it in the neck area, which helps, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but men do lose faster um, in the beginning. And so I would say they would probably notice the benefits a little faster, but okay. the majority of people within six months after surgery, it's, it's almost 80% will be able to be done with their CPAP machine. Oh, well, that's great. Um, I have a, you know, a common scenario of an obese or a patient with obesity who has a bad joint, you know, like a bad hip or a knee. And Very they, common. They have a hard time exercising, of course, because, you know, there's some things you can do. You can ride a bike sometimes. You can swim sometimes, but there's not a lot of pools available. And, you know, it's just harder. You know, <laughs> somebody without bad joints, this person's got both of these problems. Um, and, you know, like you said, you know, they've tried everything. They've even, like, tried to starve themselves almost, and there's no weight coming off. And, um, you know, what's the explanation to them on why they can restrict their calories so much but their body just doesn't want to do anything about it this is a great great question because it comes to the true core of what obesity is obesity is a disease of the brain the brain is meant to regulate our weight within a narrow range and so it does that through hunger signals through metabolism how we burn calories through being satisfied so when a person with obesity tries to lose weight 
their brain essentially says, you're supposed to be up here. It's like their thermostat's broken. Mm -hmm. So it wants to bring them up, and it's going to do that. But when they go on a diet, they get really hungry usually. Their hunger really increases by hunger hormones, but their metabolism slows down. So oftentimes they can lose 20, 30 pounds, and then they get stuck, and they'll tell you, I didn't change a thing, and all my weight came back on. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because the body is essentially moving the finish line. So say I have a patient who goes from 2,200 calories a day to 1,800 calories a day. Maybe they lose 20 to 30 pounds, they've been exercising, they're doing well, and then it just stops, and then it starts to come back on. And what happens is oftentimes their basal metabolic rate drops. So now they have to go down to, say, 1,500 calories a day just to maintain that weight loss, not lose more. Mm -hmm. And what happens for most of us when we've been on a diet and we're feeling a little bit better, we take a breath and relax. Mm-hmm. So they may not have changed a lot, but they might have gone up just 100 calories a day. But now to their body, they're getting 400 calories a day more than they should be getting. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine it doesn't take long at all for them to gain that weight back. Mm-hmm. And usually they'll overshoot their previous normal or what we call the set point. And now all of a sudden their body thinks they're supposed to be up here. And mm-hmm. each time it gets worse and worse. What a struggle. It's a very big struggle, and that's why we call it a chronic progressive disease. So, again, trying to frame that the treatment of this disease is a chronic disease. We're not curing it, even with surgery. We're treating it. We're managing Mm. it. But for these people, this will be something they continue to treat their whole life. Mm. And if they really get their mind around that, they actually usually do better with treatment than thinking, phew, I'm I'm done. I don't have to think about this anymore. It's... It's going to be easier because your body's working with you, but we're not done yet. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're on this show that's called Joint Effort, which is about joints somewhat. And uh, I mean, it's also about a joint conversation, but uh, it's about hips and knees and other joints. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you tell us what the evidence might show from your point of view on the effect of carrying too much weight on joints? Right. So... Uh, also a good question. I don't know if I answered your question fully about exercise and activity. Bring me back to that. Okay. If, if I don't. You're welcome but, to answer that. Uh, I'll start with the second one. But yeah. um, So the disease of joints and weight is actually multifactorial. Um, we always thought about the mechanical stresses, and there are definitely those. You know, there's definitely studies demonstrating not just extra force, but the abnormal angles of force that create... Um, abnormal gait so maybe they had a knee problem but now they have a knee and a hip problem Mm -hmm. you guys know this better than anybody that you know once you start guarding in one area you can create a new problem as far as that goes so there's a mechanical part but there's also a physiologic part that has to do with inflammatory markers and stuff we call adiponectin and all these different inflammatory markers that create more inflammation in those joints so it's not just the weight it's the the adipose tissue itself, the leptin, the adiponectin, has a great deal of inflammation. It's almost toxic to the exactly. to the cartilage cells, and somewhat it, like tobacco or very alcohol much, candy. Very much great examples of their body actually is, is being toxic towards their joints besides just the number on the scale. Mm-hmm. And so this is why bariatric surgery is different than just weight loss on their own. Weight loss on their own is still helpful. Even 10 pounds of weight loss can help improve the strain on joints when you look at the mechanical parts. Mm -hmm. But we're working on more of the metabolic factors too. And we actually treat those inflammatory markers directly. So we actually see the inflammation improve within even two or three weeks after surgery Mm. before the scale really moves. And this is shocking to people. Like 
I can't believe it. I'm, you know, maybe I've lost 20 pounds, but I feel so much better because those inflammation markers are, are triggered right away. This is true for type 2 diabetes and those gut hormones that change so fast that they can go from, you know, 100 units of insulin to zero within days, not because they've lost the weight yet, but because we're changing those gut hormones and the way the body works. So it's kind of similar in that way. Yeah, that's incredible. I want to get into that a little bit after we talk about the different types of, um, I want to talk more about the metabolic part of this after we talk about the types of surgery that we're talking about. So uh, basically in my mind, there's basically two different types of surgeries that you do for this nowadays or they're actually a lot ruin um, why well okay the two main ones two big ones two big and ones. that's the we don't want to go into the other ones because yeah. it's too complicated for this show i got it <laughs> um the two big ones all are the ruin why gastric bypass ruin why uh-huh okay but most people just call it the bypass okay um, it's been around for over 50 years but it's been updated 14 times so it okay. doesn't look much like it did 50 years ago um, but it's been around a long time. It's fairly standardized. That's about 20% of the procedures done in the U.S. today. What do you do for that? And so that actually involves reconstructing the anatomy. I create a tiny stomach pouch off of the top of the stomach. It's really about the size of my thumb. So we go from a stomach about the size of a football to a stomach the size of a thumb, which sounds like, oh, it's really tiny, but that's really only 10% of the work of the surgery. I also cut the intestine and recreate it so that it attaches to that little stomach and reattach the intestine back to itself. And it, the intestine attached to itself makes a Y shape. That's why it's called a room Y. And it's called a gastric bypass because the food now goes around the old big stomach and it goes right into the intestine. But the stomach just sits there. It just sits the there, so sits don't there. take it out. It still makes uh, gastric juices, the liver makes bile, the pancreas makes enzymes, all that travels down and mixes with the food further downstream. But that means there's some malabsorption with it. Yeah, what's that? So the food, when it goes the normal anatomy way, goes by the first part of the intestine, and a lot of nutrients are taken out of the food that are really important for our body. So the food won't go there anymore. So there is some malabsorption. Not all of the nutrients are absorbed in the new creation. That helps some additional weight loss, but there is some uh, problems with vitamin deficiency when you do that. So all these patients need to be on vitamin supplement for life because they can't eat healthy enough to not need them. The food just doesn't go to the right area of the body. Are there certain vitamins or is There are very specific vitamins. What are the vitamins. specific ones? So um, we, we use a bariatric vitamin that has a little higher than the average recommended uh, doses that you find in just normal over-the-counter mm -hmm. vitamins. But especially we look for thiamine, which is a B1. Mm -hmm. We look at B12. We look at additional iron because iron deficiency is the most common deficiency after, especially rheumatoid gastric bypass. Um, but we look at calcium, vitamin D. There are actually several minerals we look at. Uh, vitamin A is another one. So um, we look at all of those things early, <laughs> early mm -hmm. after surgery, mm -hmm. and then at least every year after okay. surgery. Uh, to look at especially bone health is another area that plays a role. And that's something you said you might do uh, with robotically, right. uh, that type of surgery. Right. So essentially I'm cutting things apart, re-sewing them back together in a different direction and having those little miniature hands inside the belly is, mm -hmm. is really helpful for that. Are you just sitting in the corner smoking a cigarette and the robot's doing <laughs> no the work? Cigarette. Or no cigarette. Do you, do, you just, do you have their hands on the robot? Yeah. So um, this is a good question because people have all of these different misconceptions. I don't know. Um, so basically I start at the patient's bedside, 
and I help get all the instruments docked to the patient and then I, I use a console. Think of it as operating through a computer. So the robot doesn't do the surgery. I do the surgery. It's just a tool to help with that. And the console is really right next to the patient. And my PA or my niche practitioner stays right at the bedside and helps switch out little instruments for me. And I'm literally within feet, a couple feet of the patient. So I'm not very far away. People wonder, like, are you off in some other room? No, No, I'm right there. But it's a great question. They ask me that, too, because we do that. We do robotic surgery, too. So just uh, helps us do it more accurately. We have better visualization. Mm -hmm. We have great precision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so that's a more complicated procedure, putting everything back together again. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to have that tool. Uh, The other one I wanted to talk about was the sleeve gastrectomy. Yeah, so this is the most common performed, not just in this country, but around the world by far. And uh, I've been doing this surgery actually since 2006. I brought it to Iowa Mm -hmm. from California. Um, what this surgery is, is I actually remove three quarters of the stomach, um, and it's the stretchy part of the stomach. The part that's left is... Is that the fundus? Yes, is that the, the fundus okay. and majority of the body of the stomach okay. as well. Uh, we leave most of the antrum or the bottom part intact. Okay. Um, but the part that's left is a little bigger around than most people's index finger and about as long as a banana okay. to get an idea. Mm-hmm. But we're taking out the really distensible, stretchy part of the stomach. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing that, what I'm really doing is not about, again, forcing a little tiny stomach. What it is, is I'm taking out the majority of the ghrelin producing cells, which is a major hunger ghrelin. hormone. Mm-hmm. Sounds hunger like, hormone. Okay. yeah, it, it, it looks kind of like gremlin, but it's ghrelin. Sounds like your stomach when you're, when you're hungry too, is ghrelin. <laughs> there you go. And it is a major hunger hormone. So huh. how this surgery works is it really suppresses hunger. But it also changes gut hormones in a very similar way to a rheumogastric bypass, but without those intestine rerouting. Mm-hmm. So everything goes the natural direction that it was before. It is a smaller stomach, but very similar actually to the bypass. The small stomach is really only about 10% of the work of the surgery. The majority is these gut hormone changes. Mm-hmm. And those actually, very similar to the bypass, they interact with the brain. And so this is why this is different than a diet on their own because they'll be eating a lot less, but they'll be more satisfied with that. They won't be so hungry. It suppresses hunger substantially and it improves the way they burn calories or metabolism. So instead of their body constantly shutting that metabolism down, we actually get a boost. So you got the ghrelin that um, is decreased, causing appetite suppression. But how does it actually so rapidly change like insulin dependence yeah. and things like that? That's from those other gut hormones that I was talking about. One of the big ones is GLP-1. So there are some medications um, that are available for especially diabetics that are GLP-1 agonists. And they're doing a similar thing to what we're doing in surgery, but we're doing it way more powerfully. Mm. I tell people I'm using a sledgehammer, okay? Yeah. They have a, a tiny little toothpick. Um, I'm hitting about 20 different gut hormone pathways between the gut and the brain that impact metabolism, impact satiety, impact hunger. So, um, but GLP-1 is the one of the big ones. And so the gastric bypass has a little stronger GLP-1 effect. So it's a little stronger for type 2 diabetes, but the sleeve actually has a stronger ghrelin effect because I'm actually removing a chunk of the stomach versus in the bypass, I don't actually remove it. Um, And they both have their good and down Mm -hmm. So we can talk more about that because that relates to joints a lot. 
Oh, okay, well, go ahead. Okay, so one of the big things for a gastric bypass is because I recreate everything and sew the intestine to that little stomach pouch, it's very, very sensitive to what we call NSAIDs or anti-inflammatories. Mm-hmm. And this is all ibuprofen-like medicine. Ibuprofen, Motrin, Aleve, Excedrin, Diclofenac, Mobic, all of those. How about Celebrex? Is that it, okay or not? It's still sensitive to Celebrex, not as much as the others. So How about baby aspirin? Yes, it is sensitive to baby aspirin. In high-risk patients, we'll still continue baby aspirin, but keep them on an acid-reducing therapy the whole time. But even baby aspirin can not. cause yeah. ulcers. So even one or two doses of those medicines can cause an ulcer and a bypass. Mm. So those are no-nos forever. Now, okay. we used to think tramadol and Celebrex were okay, but what we found is that high doses, they'll still cause ulcers. Mm. But if you need them short-term, they're probably a better choice, but they're still a risk. Okay. Obviously, Tylenol is okay. Tylenol safe. Mm-hmm. We always say don't go over the maximum Tylenol dose yeah. because, of course, many of these patients also have fatty liver. Mm. It doesn't mean they can't have Tylenol. That's a myth. They can. Just don't go over the maximum okay. dose. Now, a sleeve is different because I don't reconnect the intestine to that stomach. So it is not nearly as sensitive to those NSAIDs as a bypass. So those are great choices for people who have bad joints Mm -hmm. who know they're going to need those anti-inflammatories in the future because we try not to use them early after surgery while the stomach is still healing i irritate it when i cut it and it needs time to heal but after that they can have those medicines those medicines can cause ulcers in anybody at high doses over time but they're not at a higher risk because they had a sleeve and that has been the number one factor to drive popularity of a sleeve is it works really well works almost the same as a bypass with lower risks and one of the big ones is that you can take NSAIDs Mm -hmm. uh, in the future so that's been a huge actually progress for us. I'm glad you addressed uh, you know one of the common most common misconceptions among doctors and among um, uh, patients is that the sleeve is just a restrictive type procedure but the the metabolism part of this is really the where you get the bang for your buck and it's it's really amazing how much stuff you can do with just the sleeve gastrectomy. And this is why we coach people so much because there is some restriction, but most of that restrictive feeling really decreases by even six months after surgery. So we don't want them counting on it forcing them to stop eating. Mm-hmm. A lot of them will still have some, but it's not to the effect it was early on. There's a little bit of accommodation, but again, that's understanding that it's not primarily a restrictive procedure, it's primarily a metabolic procedure. So we really coach patients about being satisfied not eating to your full because mm-hmm. if you push hard you can push a lot of stuff through <laughs> and that's that's for the bypass too it just goes through more rapid sure so it goes from the little stomach to the the intestine very quickly does the ruin wide is that or either but did either of them cause any changes in stool or consistency yeah. or anything like that so um we Frequency. actually see more constipation for both surgeries than diarrhea but okay. The bypass definitely has more impact on bowel habits, both constipation, diarrhea, and bowel gas. And some of that is because of that malabsorption and that recreation of how the intestine is hooked up. So especially if they eat sugary food with a bypass, it touches the intestine much faster than it would have going through a natural stomach that slows everything down. So they can get dumping, which is basically flushing, sweating, crampy belly pain. They feel pretty rotten and then have terrible diarrhea. 
So especially, like I tell people, don't go to a potluck and eat something you don't know what's in it, mm. because that's usually going to turn out. It's probably poorly. a good uh, option for everybody not to do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of their. But that's way history. more common with a bypass than a sleeve. It's pretty rare with the sleeve okay. uh, that dumping syndrome, but bypass definitely has more impact on bowels and bowel gas and some of those things. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of the people that I have get a hold of you. Um, they need to have a knee or hip replacement, but maybe they're not right where they need to be health-wise. Uh, it's too risky for us to do the surgery, and so we're working together on that. How soon after, and this might go along with like results, you know, and you can generalize if you want, but how soon after a sleeve gastrectomy or a ruin Y would somebody be able to have a joint replacement? Sure. So the answer to that is Assuming a little bit... Assuming they met their, yeah, their goals. Their or, goals, you know, yeah. It's a little individualized because some are really, really, really severe joint disease and they really are their mobility is so impacted that you weigh their risk of poor mobility against risks after surgery but um, all patients who have bariatric surgery are higher risk for blood clots because of their weight and having surgery and we see that higher risk for blood clots last three months okay and then there's a risk of blood clots with joint surgery as well so we try really hard not to put them in that first three month Mm -hmm. window also, they're gonna. Most people are gonna have about half of their weight loss in the first three months, so we want to really capture a substantial amount of weight loss. So we we want to wait at least three months. If we can get them to six months, it's yeah. even better. Okay. Because by six months, they're almost two thirds of their total weight loss. So if we can get them to six months, one sometimes they're able to push out a joint replacement, maybe a year or two. Um, sometimes it's just um, they're moving better, different things like that. Um, but some of them, I mean, they need it as soon as possible um so then we're looking you know closer to that three month mark Mm -hmm. we usually try not to go earlier unless it's a unique circumstance Mm -hmm. so you talked about your team about how they evaluate everybody i know there's some people who aren't good candidates for um, either type of surgery can you tell us about that yeah so we try very hard to get every patient that we possibly can to surgery because it is life-saving but some people aren't going to be a good candidate and Uh, So number one, you can have what we call excessive surgical risk, and that may be that we just cannot optimize them enough. It could be based on their lungs, their heart, their kidneys. Um, We do really high-risk patients. I take care of a lot of really high-risk patients, but we do it safely because we're able to get them optimized. Even though they're not perfect, we get them Mm -hmm. a long ways down that road. And there are some people that maybe their heart failure is too bad. Um, or their lungs are too bad that it's just the risk of surgery is, is too high for them. So mm-hmm. we have that excessive surgical risk. We also have some people that from the mental health status are just not appropriate for surgery because of the requirements on the patient side to, to be able to contribute to their long-term success. So it's a little different than general surgery where I will just operate on somebody and they're better and they leave and I may never see them again. So these people have to be partners with you exactly. in their surgery and, and their, their long-term life. care. Yeah. Because we provide lifelong care, we need to know that they can contribute to that care, that they can follow the recommendations, that they're willing to make the changes that are necessary, mm-hmm. that they can be compliant. Um, so we look at, are they safe? Are they appropriate? Are they ready for surgery? And we do that process through a team process yeah. too, so that every person on the team can say, raise our hand and say, hey, I'm worried about this. Mm-hmm. And then we can be all on board together. Mm-hmm. So we only deny actually surgery slightly less than 5% of the time. But some people can take a while getting ready and appropriate for surgery. Sure. Um, so some people take longer to get there than others, but we try very hard to get everybody who's 
who we can to surgery because mm-hmm. it is such a life-saving um, intervention. Yeah. In the last few minutes, uh, maybe can you tell us about the, the process? How can somebody get a hold of you? Um, what types of things does insurance look for? Yeah. Who who won't get approved? Who will get approved? What do people have to go through, whether it's a supervised diet? I know there's different insurances too, like our Medicaid versus Medicare or private insurance. Can you tell us you know, in three or four minutes about, about that? that? Process. Yeah. yeah, the short version. Yeah, okay. short version. Okay, so um, the first step to, to surgery, or even if you're just considering surgery and not sure, is to go through one of our education classes. So we have an online Zoom class, uh, basically once a week, uh, where one of the surgeons is talking and our team talks, our dietitian talks, our coordinator talks, our insurance specialist, to get information. So it's free, no obligation, but that's the entrance. We also have online modules for people who would rather do a little bit at a time on their own time rather than doing it all as a class. And anybody can do the modules too, just for uh, additional information. Then they set up a consultation with the surgeon. That's either myself or my partner, Dr. Steve Kahalen. Um, whoever they do their consultation with, that'll be who does their surgery, who does that helps with their long-term care. Mm-hmm. Um, so the education process, either the modules or the class, is the entrance to the program. And then we start getting records from their primary care doctor, from their specialist, if they see a heart doctor, if they see an orthopedic specialist, we try to get those records. And then we try to determine if we need extra testing to determine if they're safe, ready, and appropriate for surgery. We may need heart testing. We may need endoscopy. We may need other things depending on their risk and their health. Mm -hmm. And then their insurance piece, also from our standpoint, they have a mental health evaluation. um, And they'll watch our online seminar because it's online right now for um, a support group. Mm -hmm. We used to have in-person, which hopefully we'll get back to soon. So they do that aspect too so that they understand really the comprehensive nature of what's coming and, and are prepared for that. The insurance does vary. So some insurances, they have to have tried diet and exercise, which for the vast majority of people, they have tried that. So what does that mean? Uh, Do you have to just document? You have to document that they have tried it for six weeks or they've tried? So it's actually usually comes from their primary care doctor. So that's important because they need to have talked about what they've done to try to lose weight, Mm -hmm. um, the problems, the health problems that are related to their weight. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a magic specific thing. They could have done Weight Watchers, but they just need to have it documented that that they were doing that along the way. They used to let us just say, hey, they did Weight Watchers from here to here. Now they want to see it in the notes of the primary care doctor each visit that they talk about that. that's really important, yeah. And the physical activity they're doing. Now, we mentioned this earlier, some of them struggle with exercise, so we're careful not to use the word exercise because physical activity can come in a lot of forms. Um, Some of them it's walking, but some of them can't walk. Mm -hmm. So we use a lot of what we call new step or it's kind of like a seated elliptical. I'm sure you guys are very familiar mm-hmm. with that. Absolutely. Yeah, water aerobics, water walking, um, even chair aerobics, chair exercises. Um, we look at trying to get the, the person moving, and um, so many are intimidated by the word exercise. Mm-hmm. We really talk about if we can get you doing 30 minutes of constant physical activity, anything, even a hand bicycle that sits on a table without stopping, mm-hmm. it helps you recover eight times faster than if you can't do that. Hmm. pre-surgery so that preconditioning mm-hmm. exactly is is really key so when we start framing it like that then they can understand better most of them think they can't exercise and I say I understand oh, yeah. that but we just need to get your body moving and ready because I'm going to stress it out with surgery 
and we need to have it prepared so you can bounce back faster. Mm -hmm. And then they, it helps them engage in other options that may, they may not have considered. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to make sure I kind of went down a rabbit trail there no, that I got okay. the question okay. answered. Um, so yeah, and insurance who, yeah, insurance measures. You know, briefly, yeah. who, you know, there are some people like uh, certain BMI. They right, might be so a candidate. BMI 40 and above, even if you don't have health problems in most insurances, that would be covered. Mm -hmm. BMI 35 and above with health problems, especially they're looking for things like type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, bad joints that in significantly impact mm -hmm. their mobility mm -hmm. um, can play a role. Um, we know that surgery earlier for this disease is more effective and effective long term. So um, around the world, actually, the surgery is done for people with type 2 diabetes that with a BMI down to 30. Mm. Now, insurance companies are lagging behind on this. There are probably something like 20 insurance companies in the country that cover bariatric surgery with a BMI down to 30 for people with type 2 diabetes. We don't have a lot in Iowa yet, but that's coming. Okay. And that's where we should be because that's where we can actually cause really, really near permanent long-term remission of type 2 diabetes. If we can treat it in the first five years of disease, the long-term remission rate is greater than 80%. Oh, wow. If you wait till eight years, it goes down. 10 years, it goes down even more. So the earlier we treat that disease with surgery, the better long-term outcomes mm -hmm. we have. So we need to be thinking way earlier. Yeah. But the insurance specialist will help them because some, some insurances require three medically supervised diet visits before surgery, sometimes six, sometimes 12, sometimes just one that can demonstrate that they have tried things mm -hmm. in the past. So it really varies a lot. But the big thing is start documenting it with their primary care doctor. They want either a primary care doctor or an obesity medicine specialist. Okay, that's good to know. Well, uh, Des Moines is really lucky to have you and your partner uh, in town here. It's a huge disease burden in the U.S. So we really need to uh, thank you guys for your care of these patients. Well, it's our pleasure, and it's really our passion, too. Um, I tell people, you know, part of why I became a surgeon was to save lives. That's what we're doing every day. Yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of people don't know. My father died at 56 with type 2 diabetes and severe complications of obesity. And I really understood how it affected entire families and what it really was to have early death. And so we're out here saving lives. Yes. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Joint Effort, a podcast from Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. If you have questions about this podcast and wish to schedule an appointment with a surgeon, call 515-224-1414 or visit dmos.com.